please be advised that this episode may not be appropriate for all listeners. Sexual abuse will be discussed as a survivor shares the details behind her attacks. Cindy Lovell suffered for a year and a half of ritual rape and abuse by Father Maskell while she attended Archbishop Keough High School. She had no control, no choice, and those whom she told and asked for help did not believe her. When The Keepers was being filmed, she wasn't quite ready to share her story with the world. But now, she is ready. So, this evening, we have a special guest, and Shane and I are really proud to introduce you to Cindy Lovell. Cindy is a graduate of Archbishop Keogh, and you probably are not familiar with Cindy because she was not part of the Keepers series. The Keepers is really based on what was already going on. And as most of you, we were well into the investigation and reports of abuse before the filmmakers found us. So Cindy has decided that the time is right and she's going to tell us her story. And I guess, Cindy, start where you want to, but maybe at a point where you were introduced to Joseph Maskell and we'll go from there. Thank you, Gemma. Thank you, Shane, for having me on your show tonight. Okay. I was starting at Archbishop Keogh as a freshman. I was 13 years old. The summer before I started, I had a severe case of mono, and I was barely over it when school started, but I saw I had to ride the elevator up and down the floors, which, of course, in Maskell's eyes, made me weak. And so he did his investigation, I found out later to find out why a perfectly healthy-looking young lady was riding an elevator and found out that I had mono. So one day in class, I got called down. Of course, Miss Lovell, please come down to Father Maskell's office. Okay. I'm 13. I know nothing. All right. So I go down, and I sit down, and, of course, he offers me, as always, there's either a cup of tea or a soda, one or the other, always there. And he starts talking to me and introduces himself as... Joseph Maskell, he's the chaplain of the school, and he is a psychologist, and he is a police, of works with the police force, and on and on, tooting his own horn. And then he proceeds to ask me why I ride the elevator. And I said, I had a severe case of mono, I'm not allowed to be stairs yet. So his very next question is, wow, that must mean you're sexually active because mono is a kissing disease. I'm 13 years old. I was just like, Huh? What? No. Uh Uh-uh. And he proceeds for the next half an hour to question me, do you have a boyfriend? Have you ever had a boyfriend? Have you ever been kissed by a boy? Have you ever been kissed by a man? Just totally probing questions, things like that. Made me really uncomfortable, but I figured, as always, he's the priest. He knows what he's doing. Okay. So he said, okay, thank you very much, and I left. About two or three days later, I'm in class, Miss Lovell, go see Father Maskell. I'm like, okay. So I go down, and of course, there's a cup of tea there again, and he says, I need to do some testing on you. I'm like, okay. So I'm drinking my tea, and he's showing me ink blots. And the ink blots are, I don't know, I said, that looks like a butterfly, and, or that looks like a tree, or whatever it was. I don't remember specifically what I thought it was. And every time I said something, he was like, No, that's a penis. No, that's a vagina. No, that's a breast. No, that's a man and a woman having sex. No. And I'm like, 
okay, I must be crazy because I don't see that, but okay, I'm 13. I don't even know what those things look like, okay? I had a very sheltered life. I had no concept of that at that point. And I started getting kind of a little tired. I was like, wow, I'm really tired. And the next thing I know, he's standing behind me and he's massaging my shoulders. And I'm like, okay. I didn't know what to make of it, but, and his hand reaches down and grabs my breast. And I've like kind of swatted it away. And he said, it's okay. It's okay. I'm doing God's work. And Okay, whatever. And he said, okay, you can go now. I'm like, fine. About a week later. Oh, I'm sorry. And back in this very first conversation when he was asking me about boyfriends and kissing diseases and things, he started asking me if I had my period and how often I had my period and when was my last period, things like that. And he's writing things down as, as we're talking. So, okay. So this third time I get called down to the office. I'm like, oh, geez, okay, here we go again. So I go in and of course, as always, the room is dark. So there's, you can barely see anything. It's, you know that there's a desk, you know that there's a chair off to the side. There's a window behind it, but I'll be daggone if I could see anything out the window. So I'm sitting in the chair and of course he hands me a cup of tea and he's just chatting in general. And the next thing I know, he's okay, you can go now. And I didn't remember anything. I was like, okay. So I got up and I went to walk. He walked me out the door and closed the door. And I'm walking down the hall towards class. And I'm thinking, oh, my class is buttoned. On, it's all funny. What happened? And I realized that my whole pelvis area felt really sore. And, and I was, there was like little spots of blood. I'm like, oh. I didn't think my period was due, but I didn't know I wasn't really regular at that point. So oh, I really don't feel good. Okay. I just felt like I had the flu or something. Went on, went to fix my shirt and went on, went to class. About a week after that, I get called down to his office again. And this got to be like every two, three, four days, I get called down and I'd have a tea or a soda. And I just thought I was falling asleep. I just thought that, oh, okay, I, it's nice and dark and it's cool in here. So I'm just falling asleep. And good because I must be really tired and then so then one day I go down there and he doesn't he offers me a soda but it's not in a cup it's he hands me a can okay so I pop the top off of it and I'm drinking my soda and he comes and he sits next to me like he moves over like next to me and he's reaches down like in front, he's like reaching over and starts to play with my breast. I didn't have any breasts at that point anyway. What do you have at 13? Okay. But he, he's reaching over and he's massaging and, and like making sounds. And, and I'm just like, I'm wiggling. Oh, no, stop. And, and then he reaches down and he's put it, trying to put his hand down my skirt. And I'm like, and I like smack his hand away. No, stop. You can't do that. And he's just smirking. This, uh, unless you've seen it before, you can't understand this. The smirk on his face, it's just this evil, it's just pure satanic smirk and the look in his eye. And he looked at me and he said, I can do whatever I want. I am Father Maskell. And I said, no, you can't touch me like that. That's not right. I said, he says, I'm leaving. And he said, you're not. Sit down. And I got up from the chair and he reached in his drawer and he pulled out a gun and he put his gun on the table or on, the, on his desk. And he said, sit down. And I, so I sat down. I'm like, 
what the hell? Back then I didn't curse, of course, but, and he's just smirking in just that shit-eating grin. And he reaches in his desk drawer and he pulls out a stack of Polaroid pictures. And he said, you're not going anywhere. You're not saying anything to anyone. And here's why. And he shows me these pictures of me and him having sex in all kinds of ways and positions. And there was pictures with a crucifix inserted into my vagina. And there was a picture with a gun in my vagina. And there were pictures of him putting things up my rectum and him putting fingers in there and him just, you could tell that I was not there. My physical body was there, but I, my eyes were not open in a single one of the pictures. And I just burst into tears. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't know that this stuff even existed. Didn't know about sex. I was 13, very sheltered. And I'm seeing things that I didn't even know were possible. And he's sitting there and he's laughing. I'm crying. I'm like, what did you do? What did you do? What did you do? And that's when he started with, I do God's work. You are an evil child and you have things that need to be removed from your system. And I will be the one to remove them. And you will not say anything to anyone. And I said, but, and he says, no, you will not, or your little brother will go to foster care. Now, mind you, my little brother was not even a year old. He was born in June of 1970. So this was in the fall of 70, I believe. So he was not even six months old. My father was an alcoholic and my mother was the only one working, trying to hold us all together. And what he said is, if you tell anyone your little brother will go to foster care. Your mother will work the streets as a whore for me. And your father will be in prison for raping and molesting you. And I said, but he didn't touch me. He says, "Your his word against mine. Your father's been in and out of prison more than anyone I know. So he's a bad man and he's raised you to be a bad person. So there's a lot of work to be done. So you will not say anything if you want to maintain your family. Now you can go. And I left his office and I didn't know what to do. I did. I couldn't say anything. I didn't want anything to happen to my family. I didn't want anything to happen to my little brother. I didn't want my mother to be a whore. I felt like it was all on me. I had nothing I could do. Nothing I could say. So over the next year and a half, whenever he called, over the intercom, Miss Lovell, report to Father Magnus, Father Maslow's office. I had to go. And it was the hardest walk ever to walk down that hall, knowing full well what is about to happen and knowing that I can do nothing to stop it, that I'm 13 years old, 14 after October. And this is a priest that is supposed to be God's right hand. This is supposed to be the one that I'm to trust. This is the one I'm supposed to go to 
when I have trouble. This is the one I should have been able to go to when things got crazy at home about my my alcoholic father or my not having enough food to eat and taking in half the family relatives and not having money. But no, this was the one I had to go to and have sex at 13 and 14 years old. This is a man who brought in Father Magnus. He brought in his police buddies. And it's always in his office. And once he showed me the pictures, there was no more drugs. I was I had to be fully aware and engaged. He took my innocence. He took my youth. He took and jaded me. He made me do things that as an adult, I would never do. There are... There's so much that is evil incarnate in those men. I don't even, I can't even tell you how many times he told me that his sperm was what was purifying me and Father Magnus was purifying me. And when I'm having sex with two men or three men at the same time, this is all God's work. And never once did I have a choice. I was a sex slave to priests and police officers. I was forced to do things that I didn't even know existed, that I didn't want to do, didn't care to do, and had no choice because no one would believe me. I started getting migraines, and I would go to Miss Yampieri, the nurse, and I'd say, can you just give me some aspirin? I don't feel good. I don't want I don't want to go to class. He said, I just knew this was going to be one of those days. And he got wind of it when, I, when they would, he would call for me and I wasn't in class. So he would look for me. And he went to Nurse Jean-Pierre and said, she cannot have aspirin anymore. She's faking it. And at that point, he called me in and told me that, and I said, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this. I'm telling my dad. And he said, preemptively, here's what I've done so that uh, no one's going to believe you anyway. He went and he called both of my parents who had no money to begin with. I'm their only daughter. Okay. And he told my parents that as a psychologist and as a neurologist, it was his opinion that I had a brain tumor and I needed to see a specialist because the tumor was pressing on the nerves and parts of my brain that made me hallucinate. And that, and I was not to be upset that they were not to do anything to upset me. And that, that I said to them would be discounted because it was just the brain tumor. And that he made arrangements with my parents to see a neurologist or a specialist or whatever it was. I didn't, I don't even know. I just know that they both took me and it was over by the school somewhere. And lo and behold, I don't have a brain tumor, didn't have one. But it was just one more way to exert his control over me. I told Sister Judith, she was dean of students at the time. I started smoking pot. I was just like, no, this isn't happening. And I started hanging with that crowd. And then Sister Judith would follow me around all the time. Miss Lovell, come in my office. Miss Lovell, come in my office. I'm like, when do I ever get time to go to class? Okay, between your office and, and his office, I, I'm never in class. And she would sit there and she'd say, I need to know who you're buying your drugs from. I'm like, I'm not buying drugs. I smoked a joint. Okay, whatever. And I said, look, I finally one day I said, Father Maskell is doing all these things to me. He's doing this and he's making me, I can't deal with it anymore. I have to go in there because he's a priest and nobody will believe me. And she looked at me and she said, 
I don't believe you. And she called Father Maskell and had him come to her office and get me from her office and take me to his office, where he proceeded to rape me again and again. I had a year and a half of ritual rape and abuse where I had no control, no choice. Nobody would believe me. It just kept going and going. And yeah, I smoked a lot of pot back then. And it was all I could do to just get up in the morning. Things were not great at home. We had no money. There was a lot of mouth to feed. My father's drinking all the time. Okay. Yeah. So when I think it was April of May of my sophomore year, a week went by, two weeks went by, three weeks went by, and I didn't get any calls down to his office. I'm like, oh, what's this? What is this all about? Oh, okay. Part of me was very relieved. Part of me didn't understand because part of me felt rejected. And I I know that looking back at that time, it's perfectly understandable to have grown an attachment to your captor, but I didn't know that I had that. And it was, I got very upset and very depressed. Like, why doesn't he want me anymore? Am I not good enough? And at that point, I realized I've been hearing other girls' names, so-and-so come down to Father Maskell's office, so-and-so come down to Father Maskell's office. And I realized that other girls were going through this. I didn't know it at the time that I was going through it, but it was only after he was done with me that I realized it. And that's when I realized that during that time, I had pretty money, pretty much no friends. Those that were my friends knew nothing about anything that could possibly be going on. They were freshmen and sophomores. They were living normal lives. They, they had no way of knowing what was happening to me. But the older girls, our sister class, the juniors and the seniors, they had all heard rumors, and they avoided me. They said, you're one of Maskell's girls. You're a Maskell girl. We don't hang with Maskell's girls. Mm. Nobody knew whether it was being a Maskell's girl because we were supposed to be narc or because we were being raped. No one really knew. They just knew that we were tainted with Maskell, and he was affiliated with the cops. And yeah, throughout the course of that year and a half, there were any number of police officers that showed up. There were, of course, Magnus, and there were more pictures. And I wish, one of the things that I really wish would happen, and I know that he's buried them or they're long gone, but I wish that pictures would resurface. Because in those pictures were the faces of those faceless men that were with me. And I could put a name to that face and I could make them accountable for what they did to me. I can't make Maskell and Magnus accountable because they're dead. They're They're long gone. But I don't know about, I, I don't even know how many police officers there were. I know there were any number of times that Maskell just sat in his chair and watched. There were times that he participated. There were, there was no limit on what he let them do to me. Mm. They could do whatever they wanted. I was beat. I was punched. I was raped. I was, you name it. I was sodomized more times than you can imagine because, hey, here's this pretty young thing and nobody else is going to let me do it. Hey, he says I can do it. Okay. And they did. I had, I was, I knew more 
about sex at 14 years old and all the perversions of men at 14 than most grown women know when they die that have been married and lived normal, healthy lives. I don't have a childhood. I had no childhood. That was stolen from me. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. What happened from that point is I attempted to live a normal life, but I'm scarred. I'm damaged good. How do you go out and start to date someone when, you know, you don't know how to have a relationship? How did it even flirt? You don't know how to do those things. You know what the end is going to be? Yeah, I became promiscuous and had a lot. I tried to have normal relationships, but that didn't work. Every relationship that I got into was abusive because, hey, that's what I knew. Maskell ingrained in me that sex and love were one and the same. That when someone is raping you, hurting you, inserting things in you, They're only doing that because they love you. He was God's right hand. So he was making me pure and holy again. So to me, it took a really long time to get past that fucked up bullshit thinking that's what love is. That's not love. But it took me a really long time to figure that out. When I... Finally, I got married and I had kids and I put it all behind me. I just actually just buried it. I, it was the only way I could deal with it. I didn't know what else to do with it. I couldn't talk about it. I couldn't do anything. So I buried it. And I honestly forgot about it for a really long time. And I married my husband and he was abusive and we had two beautiful girls. And I tried my best to be the good Catholic wife. 
I tried to raise my kids in the Catholic Church. I tried to be everything that I thought I was supposed to be, the good wife, the good mother, the good Catholic. When it came time, I taught CCD classes and at St. Augustine's Church because that's where we went and that's where my kids went. And I made sure my kids were making all their sacraments. And I really tried, but there was always that part of me that just said, this is bullshit. This doesn't work. I can't do this. But it's what was expected of me. And it, again, expectations mean love. If you love me, you'll do this. So... Yeah, if you love me, you'll go to church. If you love God, then you'll go to church. Okay, fine. This is how messed up my head was. So I'm teaching CCD class, my kids, and I'm not 100% sure of the year. I think my youngest was in fourth grade. My oldest was in sixth. I think that was about the time. I could be off on the year. So I was teaching a CCD class in the beginning of the year, and I'm, I had my back turned to the door, and Sister Marilyn shot. She was a, such a sweetheart. And whenever you have the nuns or the priests come around, all the kids have to pay attention. And you knock on the door and someone comes in and she says, hi, Cindy, I'm here to introduce the new pastor. And I turned to the door and he's standing there. And he looked at me and he got that smirk on his face. And he says, now, mind you, I was married at the time. I had my married name. My maiden name was nowhere near there. And he looked at me and he says, hello, Miss Lovell. Long time no see. We'll have to catch up. And all I could think was run, grab the kids, run, don't come back. Just run as far and as fast and as hard as you can. Just get the hell away from him. Don't do this. No, this isn't happening. But I couldn't do that because. Because I'm standing in front of a class of children and my kids are in a class and I'd never told anybody what had happened. And all of a sudden I'm having this major panic attack because here he is and he knows me. He knows my name. He knows who I am. And I don't look the same. I don't have the same name. Did he do his research on me before he came to class? Did he know I was there? Did I look the same to him? Was there some type of mark on me that I didn't know? And I went into a total, absolute state of panic. Because all I could think of at that moment was, oh, my God, my kids are the age that I was when this was happening with him. He's not going to do this to my kids. And he just smirked and he said hello to the kids and he left. And I don't even know how I made it through the rest of that night. I I just know that when it was over and the kids got out of class, I I went running to each of their classes to make sure that they were there. And I pulled them out of their classes and I still couldn't tell my husband to this day. He doesn't know I'm divorced 20 some years. He still doesn't know. It wasn't anything that I could ever tell him because of the way he was until he was. It's only been recently that I've even, told anyone but I went through the next couple years trying to figure out I knew I couldn't stop taking my kids to church they had to make their confirmation I couldn't go to church because he was there I couldn't let them be with him I could I didn't know how to handle this my obligation is to take them but I know I can't and I didn't want to be alone in there with him I didn't want just knew I couldn't so years went by, and I, once my 
daughters made their confirmation. I stopped going to church completely. I, I never believed in it from that point when I had my realization. I just didn't believe in the church anymore. I couldn't. How could somebody who says that they are God's servant do that to someone? I started looking for other churches and other ways because I liked feeling like I had some something bigger and better than me, some type, some version of God. But I didn't know where that was or how to do that. I checked out a couple other churches and I checked out some universalists and some church on the hill and a couple other things. And someone told me about a shaman. So, okay, shaman was offering classes. So I started taking classes with him. And I realized at that point that, oh, I'm pretty screwed up, but I don't have to be anymore. Nobody could hurt me anymore. And so I started working with him and he helped me to have some techniques that, you know, psychically or etherically helped me to beat him up or get some of the anger and the hurt and the frustration out. Helped me to start to deal with a lot of what had happened to me. And for that, I'll be always grateful. But he also started me on my path to who I really am and what gifts I really have. Cindy explains that the shaman was who started her on her current path, but then she met Adele of Angelic Wise Ones. Adele is a visionary medium and a spiritual counselor who continues to work closely with Cindy. With her help, Cindy now feels she has value in her voice with knowledge and skills, giving her reason to continue to survive without being silenced. And with her, through her, we did some, some therapy. She is, she's a medium. She is a visionary medium. She sees things. She does things. She's an amazing person. And with working with her, she's helped me to become a medium and accept the gift that God gave to me and to be the person that I am inside, the person I was meant to be, the person that God and Spirit intended me to be. And it was because of her and the teachings and the growth that I've been through that I not only have been able to say, you know what, Every, everything is a lesson. Everything happens for a reason. Yeah, I could have learned this lesson a whole lot easier than I did, but all the things that I went through made me who I am today. It strengthened me. It taught me things that, you know, about people and human nature and what's good and what's bad and what evil looks like and how to deal with it and that it doesn't have to beat me. I did not let it win. Because of my teacher, I found my inner strength. Because of that, I found that my mediumship skills, that my psychic abilities, my clairvoyant abilities helped me to find clients that are like me, that I can help them the same way she helped me. I don't let this define me. I've healed beyond this. I am no longer a victim. I don't have to be a victim anymore. By being a victim, I let Maskell and Magnus and all those police officers win. They get away with it. I'm not doing that anymore. I don't need to live in that. That is the past. It helped to define who I am today, but it's not what I am. I'm no longer 
a sex slave. I'm no longer a whore. I'm no longer any of those things that he made me. I am today who I made me. And I'll always be grateful to Adele for helping me to find that. Because of the strengths that I have, I have started my business, which is the Monarch Medium. And it's an on- I have an online website here. Welcome to check it out. But I do readings and I do spiritual counseling and I do some guidance. And I'm getting ready to set up a talk circle for abused women just to talk, just to kind of help them to get it out and maybe help realize that you're not alone. And there are ways that you can strengthen yourself, that you can realize who you are, that you can realize you, you don't have to roll over and play dead, that there are alternatives. And I'm not talking, oh, I'm going to help you leave your husband or your boyfriend. That's not what I'm about. Just talking it out, feeling not alone, getting a different perspective. That's what Talk Circle is going to do. Yeah, I've been through a lot. I've changed a lot. I'm a strong, independent, self-sufficient woman. And I'm I'm happy with who I am. And I'm in a part of me, I'm grateful to all those men who put me through that because they helped me to gain an insight and an understanding that I never would have had any other way. And hopefully I'll be able to find a way to share that strength with someone else. Cindy, there are thousands of people that will be listening to you. And I don't think there's anything that Shane or I could add to your story. You have done what very few people have had the ability or the courage to do, and that's to tell your truth. And I'm in awe of you. I'm in tears, as I'm sure many people listening to you are, because of what you just told us. And I want to thank you. No, you're I, welcome. I think that from a, just from a practical standpoint, you have been able to corroborate the stories that we've heard from other women, very specifically, including that other people like Tia were certainly involved and aware and that you did report your abuse, reported it to yes. Sister Judith. And I hope Sister Judith is listening to this because I believe oh, that would you. Be wonderful. And I think it's time for people who knew what happened to do what you did and come forward and tell the truth. I, I, and I agree with you, Gemma. I absolutely yeah. agree. Gemma, I know Gemma that there's... <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. One. I said, Stemma <laughs> is speechless right now because I'm just all of <laughs> Oh, thank you. I tell my story today not because of anything other than I found that inner strength. I found my way. I found the God of my definition. I found my spirit. And every one of us has a way to find that. Many people have asked me, why are you not really against the Catholic Church? I kind of am. But you know what? It really doesn't do any good. I'm not telling all these people in the Catholic Church to turn their backs and run away and never be Catholic again. That's not my place. Everyone has to worship the God of their belief. And if you believe in the God of the Catholic Church and you live the lifestyle and it works for you, God bless you. I'm happy for you. I'm not going to tell you not to do that. 
what I'm going to tell you is don't be naive. Don't be blind. There are so many things going on that the church right now is backpedaling so hard. And they are trying their very best to keep the people in line. Lori, Archbishop Lori is the biggest joke to me that has existed in a really long time. And unfortunately, although he isn't physically bracing me, he is taking and he's he is as bad in his way as Masco and Magnus were because he is throwing up the blinders. He is he's telling those people truly believe in Catholicism and God bless them, wish them well in, in their travels. I don't want I don't want them to ever have to go through what I did. But they need to see that he's telling you that oh doing everything we can. No, you're not. You wouldn't be sitting here saying, I'm not releasing the file. They have this whole big secret coven or society or whatever you want to call it of people that know about all the abuse that the priests have been doing for years and they've been playing mumbly peg with it or they've been playing whack-a-mole. Let's see, oh, they got caught over here. Let's move over here. Oh, you're you're right. over here. They think, let me move you over here. Oh, over the country. Out of, they, they have moved so many priests all over the place. You're, there's no way of tracking how many priests actually were in what state and raping what kid. And the problem with all that is the church knew of the whole release in Pennsylvania shows you specifically the church knew about it. The bishops, the archbishops, the cardinals, and some say even the Pope. I'm not going to say whether he did or not, but there's innuendos that he does or he did. And instead of saying, oh, my God, this is not right. This is not what Jesus led us to do. What they did is they focused on the suffered little children and come unto me. And they made all the little children suffer. They took away childhood. They took away innocence. And there, there is a movement among the priests right now that has been publicized where they're trying to turn this back on the victims. After all, the age of reasoning is seven years old. So therefore, they, it's their fault. Bullcrap. These were grown men who we were told that we could not disobey. So, yeah, the church has turned this around and they're trying to make it, oh, the mea culpa, I'm so sorry, we're going to make this better. And they're not. If they truly wanted to make this better and they truly wanted to make the church that Jesus intended this to be, they would turn this over to a federal investigator. They would have the whole RICO Act or whatever it is going on because these were sex slaves and priests being moved around everywhere. These were people taking, I, I personally was in, in two different counties with this guy. Okay. I mm -hmm. know girls that have been in six different, there is any number of people that they were forced to have abortions. I was lucky. I didn't have to have the abortions. Thank God. But those people that did, it's not fair to those who truly believe in the Catholic church and the Catholic faith to have to not be able to let their children go to a church function because you don't know if the priest is going to be hurting your child. It's not right that they can't trust the people in charge. I don't know what the answer is. I know that there is any number of priests in the good old boy society and archbishops and cardinals and on, on up the lines that either have already abused people 
know, or know of the abuse. And their little secret thing is not letting them tell. And you know what? The Pope needs to stop calling all these secret meetings. Oh, let's talk about it in February. Let's do something now. Let's put out a statement. Let's get it out to the churches. No, it's hell. Yes, I knew about Father so-and-so. I knew about this. This is the children that came to me. Yes, release the secret file. Release the personnel file. I want those pictures from Masco to be found because I want to know what the, who the cops were. Okay, I want to know why everybody could know about this, why there were so many different people in and out of that all-girls school and nobody stopped them. How can you have police officers coming in and out of his office nobody asked about? How is that even possible? More people had to have known about that just from that school alone. More people other than just Sister Judith and Father Maskell. I agree. I want accountability. I, we're supposed to go to confession and say, hey, I'm really sorry for everything that I did and I'm going to try and be better. You know what? They can't just go to God. They need to make atonement for their sins. They need to mm-hmm. say, you know what? This is who I am. This is what I've done. And I'm. it's not going to happen. I'm not allowed. They need to report to the you know, on the sexual predator list, just like anybody else on the outside would have to do. But that's not going to happen. So for me, yes, I will. I will fight the good fight. I will. I'll do the interviews. I'll put my story out there. I will cooperate wherever I can. And I'm setting up my talk circle for anyone who it doesn't have to be priest of use. It can be your husband. It can be your brother, your uncle, your neighbor, what, a stranger. But everybody needs to be able to have a safe place to tell your story. Everybody needs to know that you're not alone. And everybody needs to know that it doesn't have to define you. And that's what I'm trying to do. If there are people, I'm sure you've touched people who have gone through similar experiences as you have all over the world. There are people who are struggling with being afraid to share this with somebody. What advice would you give them? If they've never if they, talked about absolutely, it? absolutely. And that's a great question. And I do get that from some of my clients. When you hear this, and there are people that are just like, yes, I, it's in my conscious. I know that this happened to me, but I can't admit it to anyone. I can't tell right. anybody. Yeah. Okay. There are ways that you can help yourself to get over it. Okay. For I, not get over it. That's not the right word. Get through it. Um, through it. Yeah. To work through it. And the, obviously the first thing is going to be to, to do some meditation, to, to get in touch with your spirit, your, who you are on the inside. Um, and then to start journaling and, Journaling, everyone says, oh, oh, I keep a diary or whatever. No, journaling is something totally different. Journaling is all about the conversation with you and God. Nobody else reads your book. And some people are in a situation where they can't keep it around. They can't have a diary. Somebody might find it or a book or a journal or whatever. You can, there's any number of ways you can do it. I don't keep any of my journals. Once I'm done with a particular topic, I I shred it, I burn it, whatever. But you sit down to write or you can talk into a tape recorder and then erase it. You can can say it out loud to the wall. You can have an inanimate object when no one is around that you talk to. But somehow you have to get your story out. You've got to bring it to the surface. You've got to be able to see it for what it was. And realize that 
as I said in the very beginning, these things were done to you, not Mm -hmm. by you. They were not done by you. They were not done with your permission. Therefore, those that think your childhood was stolen or, you know, that you'll never get it back. No, you're not going to get your virginity back and you're not going to get your innocence back. But when you find someone and you fall in love and, you know, you want, that is your gift to give. Just because you are not that innocent virgin anymore doesn't mean that your first time that you give yourself to someone isn't special because that may, that is even more special because that is something your very first time of giving of your deep hearted self. Right. Journaling is where you sit down and you get in touch with all of that, get in touch with everything that's going the inside of you. And you say, okay, there, there are days of things that are going on in my life. When I was dealing with this stuff with last and I started journaling, I would take an entire book, an entire journal book. And I would just like, F-U-F-U-F-O-B, every curse word, just let the anger out. I destroyed more books just getting that anger out. And then I would start to write something and all I could do was cry. And it, you know, just anger and crying. And But it was getting it out. It was cathartic. It gets it from the inside and out of your body. It's true. Sure, and I changed. It doesn't change what actually happened. But it helps you to gain a different perspective on it. At what period of time after Sister Kathy's murder were you starting to attend Keto? You started in September of 71. So it was two years after. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. And that um, would be the same. Would that be this? Oh, no. Jean was ahead of you. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. Go ahead. ahead of me. Do you feel like the purpose of the photos was just to get you to not talk about it to other people? Like that's like part that? of it. That that, uh, that was a big part of it. Sure, it, initially, but as time went on, I know that he had an entire set of photos that he showed to the different people that came to visit us, so they could say, "Oh, I want this one," just like a little whorehouse. Oh, I want this one today. I, I want that one today. So it, he had photo array of the different things that he's done to us and what we look like, and everyone could choose who they wanted to be there that day. So those but pictures, I yeah, those pictures are of multiple students, and yes. we know now that was probably what was buried in the Holy Cross Cemetery which has strangely disappeared. No thanks yes. to Sharon May. So it was a, both a threat and an advertisement, kind of. Exactly. And, and again, a lot of this is hindsight. Because at the time, I didn't know there was other people involved until after he was done with me. So he was very careful when he showed me the pictures that he took, not only in the beginning, but several times throughout. When he showed me the pictures, they were only pictures of me and those that were with me. When did you start to learn about what other people had been abused? As I said, about a year and a half abused by him. And then he stopped. And within a couple of weeks, I started paying attention to other girls' names being called to come down to his office. So it could have been going on all along, but I was so wrapped up in my own crap at that point, really, unfortunately, didn't pay attention. But it was 
after he was done with me, when I had that split, yes, he's calling other people and oh God, he's not calling me. That feeling of rejection and the feeling of anger that he's calling other people and doing that. And then sadness for them because I knew what they were going through. But I couldn't go to them because that would be admitting everything at that point, too. Cindy, did you interact with him at all in your junior or senior year? You finished nope. the CEO, right? I did. I graduated in 75. Yeah. So what nope. was his demeanor towards you after those first two years? Uh, okay. The one thing, and he was very passive about this, I... And I forget what it's called, but it's the incense that they sprinkle up and down the aisles during First Friday Mass. You know, oh, yeah. yeah. And Benediction. Benediction. Thank you. I, every time I smell that, because it, I don't know what the mixture is or whatever, it would make me throw up. Just nonstop, it would make me throw up. His little, because we were always forced to go to all the masses. We're in a Catholic school. We have to go, okay? And he would make sure, wherever I happened to be sitting, that he would make sure that he would stop right next to the aisle that I was in and throw the incense my way so that I was forced to inhale it and have to run out of the pew to throw up. He did that on purpose every single time. Mm. But no, other than that, no, it was like it had never happened. He knew that it did. He knew that it did. But he, other than when he came to the CCD classroom, and not, he didn't call me by my married name, which is what everybody there knew. Nobody else knew my maiden name. I'd been married for multitudes of years by that point. And mm-hmm. he came to the door and he says, hello, Miss Lovell. Nice to see you again. We'll have to catch up. Like, oh, crap. Okay. So either he did his research with everybody, every teacher that was there and somehow knew that my married name correlated with my maiden name or he remembered me and was threatening me again. All I know is it was, it was enough. It sent me in a total state of panic and it brought it all back because I had successfully somewhat buried everything for all those years. Were your daughters, were they students at St. Augustine? No, CCD class. We didn't have money okay. for private school, so that's okay. why we're teaching CCD. Thank goodness. Thank goodness, huh? Yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't have been with him. Yeah. Now, yeah, and he wasn't there that long, but it was long enough to not only send me into a state of panic, but to try and protect my own children, but to, yeah, he wasn't there that long, thank God. He brought it all to the surface, and that was enough. And it needed to come to the surface. I needed to address it. I needed to deal with it. I needed to know exactly what strength I had because I I didn't know. At that point, I was in an abusive marriage and I I just associated sex and love as being one and the same. And that's okay. That was just what I was taught. And it's taken me, look, I'll be 62 years old next month. And it's taken me all this time to be comfortable with who I am with what I've been through and with the skills and knowledge that I have. And I'm grateful to Adele for all of that because without Mm -hmm. her, I never, ever would have been able to get here. I would very likely have been like many of the other survivors who just flounder around and like, I would have to do. But yeah, no, she, if it weren't for her, I would have probably still been there or dead. I was suicidal at that when I found out too. Yeah, a lot of things conspired in my life There's a plan, and I believe that this is part of the plan that I'm supposed to be following. 
I'm supposed to be helping others. I was given this special gift of not only being able to, to be a medium, but to, to be compassionate and help other people because I've got the strength to do that. When was the first time you spoke to someone about the abuse? My boyfriend, we've been together 20-some years. Not long after we were together, I had been, work- I had been working with the shaman and, and starting to deal with it. And I just kind of very casually, matter-of-factly, because he's so far from abusive, he's a complete opposite of everyone, and that's why he's such a wonderful guy. But I casually mentioned to him, like, there's something that a long time ago that I'm dealing, I'm learning to deal with now. And he just looked at me, and he said, and I told him, I said, I was abused by a priest. And he just looked at me, he gave me a hug, and he said, it's in the past, it doesn't affect you now. He said, you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm fine. He said, okay. So from that point, bits and pieces of it would come out here and there with like working with Adele. But about maybe a year and a half, two years ago, maybe a little longer, I actually opened up to then told the full story to Adele and a, a classmate because I'm actually starting to write a book and about not only my story, but how how I got stronger and how I was helped and how I found my strength and my peace. In that context, I worked. I was working with Adele and a couple of classmates, and I shared my story. And I told part of it to the church when I went through the mediation. I told them more than they needed to know, and not as much as there was, and. They were horrified, and the judge that was presiding over it, of course, the archdiocese is a joke to begin with, but mm-hmm. the, the judge was so sweet, and he reached over, and he patted my hand, and he wiped the tear away, and he said, I've been doing these mediations for a while now, and he said, I've got to stay, he said, Yours is a pretty intense story that I've never heard anyone as intense mm-hmm. as that. We want to thank you for what you've done just in the last hour, because I know there are people listening that you're, you've changed their lives already, Cindy. And hopefully well, they'll hope have so. the courage to do something about it. All of the attorney generals in every city or every state are either working on this, have worked on this, or are getting ready to work on this. And I encourage every single one of you, call your attorney general's office and let them know you have a story to tell if you can't tell anyone else tell have a conversation with you and the god that you believe in your journal nobody else has to know about it you have to get it out of you you've got to get it out of you and journaling is for me and most of my clients has been very cathartic and when you start to be honest with yourself and what happened and able to look at it, and you can let your anger out, you can let your disgust out, you can let it all out. And then you can either save your journal somewhere if you have a safe place, or you can destroy them because you've gotten that part out of you. It's going to take you years. Don't think that just because you get it out once, okay, I'm done. That's not the way it's going to happen. It's going to take time. It takes a lot of work to get through this, but you will get through it. Thank you so much for sharing your story, Cindy. I can't imagine being in a place that, that you've been forced into all this time 
So I'm glad that finally you're able to be in a place where you're comfortable yourself to talk about it. And I hope that out of everyone that listens, I hope that hopefully, you know, someone, it helps. Hopefully if someone else was abused, I hope that this message from you will help them have the strength to come forward and talk about it. I hope so too. Thank you, Shane, for taking the time to interview me. Thanks, Cindy. Okay, so what we're going to start doing at the end of all these episodes is we're going to start answering some questions that people have posted on the Keeper's Facebook page. Just really quickly, Gemma, can you tell me the where people can find that Keeper's page? Yes, it's the Keeper's official group, and it's sponsored by Netflix. It does not belong to us or to you. It belongs to Netflix, so we can't, we're not the administrators, but we're also, Shane, I think we're going to ask to post the link to your episodes there. Since I have posting permission now, which is great. And so people can just tap on the link when your episode is released, correct? Yeah. Okay. And so yeah, if people have, yeah, people have questions. They can, if they use a queue and a queue format, then we'll be able to find the questions and flag those. But I will say there are so many that we're going to try not to repeat questions and we will try to get to everybody's. Yeah. And I think that another good part about people asking questions is, for example, a question we're going to talk about here in a minute that someone asked, hopefully we'll have an episode devoted to going more into depth. So it gives us a better idea on what type of questions people have. So if you do have questions, definitely reach out. The podcast also has a discussion group, so you can join that as well. It's just out of the shadows discussion group. So let's go ahead and get started. I'm going to pull those questions up really quick. All right, so for these questions, I will go ahead and give the person's name who asked them. So this one is from Donna Miller Zimmerman, and her question is, what happened to Kathy's car and keys? And were fingerprints or blood found or collected? Okay, Donna, thank you. A lot of people are wondering about this. Kathy's car was impounded by the police, gone over with a fine-tooth comb. And the same with her keys. When they were finished with the car, they gave the car back to Sister Russell. And Sister Russell continued to use it because the nuns had been sharing it. They didn't have the money for two cars. And Russell was working at Rock Glen right up the hill. So she walked to school and Kathy would drive to school. So Russell was given the car. The only fingerprints or blood that, first of all, to our knowledge, there was no blood found inside the car. So it does not appear that the car was actually where Kathy was murdered because there would have been blood from her head wound. I guess it's possible if she was strangled first because that did not yield blood her skin was not broken and we know she was strangled that could have happened in the car there were no fingerprints other than hers and russell that we're aware of that were in the car but i i can say that kathy's autopsy indicates that she was wearing a glove on one hand 
So I'm assuming that night she did have driving gloves on. And it's very likely that the perpetrators of the murder were also wearing gloves. So they would not have left any fingerprints behind. And we're not aware of blood left behind either. From no, we're not or... aware. And we all have seen those pictures that were used in the film. Those were courtesy of the police department. But it does not appear that any blood was found in the car. Yeah. All right. So the second okay. question is from Cindy Kenny Kootness and Amy Robinson. Question is, I've always wondered about the stick hanging from the ignition and steering wheel. And they also want to know if there was any type of symbolic of anything involving the stick hanging from the ignition or steering wheel. Would you like me to respond? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. First of all, we don't know. Sister Cassidy was all about symbols. It is not unlikely that she may have tried to leave that dried piece of grass, which was neat and long, over the turn signal. That's a possibility because she was always into symbolism, always in her writing, in her speech, in what we were reading. Things always had, were always symbolic. I don't know. I'm sorry, Teddy is participating now. (laughs) Other than that, we are thinking that, Shane, I don't know how we're going to edit this. It's okay. I'll start again. I'll walk out of the room. (laughs) Other than that, as far as the grass, laying over the turn signal it's also likely that maybe she wanted someone to have an idea of where she went or who took whoever took her in the car so if that long grass was typical of the area where she was taken there may have been a time that it was possible for her to grab that piece of grass and put it over the turn signal Another theory could be that in a crazed perpetrator's mind, maybe they were trying to be insidious and leave some kind of symbol to say, here's where we were, see if you can find her, which is a horrible thought. But these people are not normal anyway. Do you have thoughts about that, Shane? You definitely know more about that specific grass hanging from the steering wheel. Was the grass at all consistent with the area where she was founding? Yes, it was. But it's also typical of other places. But it was not a twig. It was a long piece of dried grass. And it was found on the steering wheel, right? Or the, yes, the it was, turn it was found. Yes, it was found on the left side over the turn signal, I believe. And it's possible that the listeners can go back and look in the keepers and see a picture of that see in my head she was the one that put it there then the the, whoever dropped the car back off who we would assume was involved would have to have known it was there so i don't know why they would have just left it there left it there hanging while they were driving and getting out of the car my mind immediately goes to they were hoping that they would find her quicker you all look at the I mean, in my head, of course, I don't, I didn't, I have no idea 
what Sister Kathy was like. I'm 29, so clearly I wasn't alive back then. But in my head, I jumped to the first conclusion of this is the this is a sign from whoever is responsible for doing it. my my thought goes to they're wanting people to find where she is. They want the message of her remains being found to to get to people. So in my head, I immediately jumped to the abuse that this was a calling card. This is what mm-hmm. happens if you confront us. And the, the fact that they yeah, the fact that they left that there, whoever drove the car had to have seen it. They had to have made the choice to leave it there or put it there. So in my head, that's where I jumped to. And, you know, like I said, you sister Kathy more than I do. Maybe the person mm-hmm. who drove it, it was later at night. Maybe they didn't see it. I, I, I couldn't answer that question. But going to the but next question, go ahead. Yeah, we're theorizing just like your listeners yeah. are because we don't know. And again, the police are not able to share with us everything that they have. When this case right. is closed, then all that changes. So whether it's solved or if it's closed without being solved, then some of that information might be more readily available. Exactly. Yep. And just like the last question, someone asked if there were fingerprints. We assumed that there wasn't, but if there were, we're not privy to the information that the detectives have. It's not a, it's not a, not a question that we know definite answers for. But if the case is solved, then we both believe that it will be. I think that we'll all learn more about those details. The next question is from Libby Prill. The question is directed to you, Gemma. They would like to know, have you ever seen the Law & Order SVU episode titled Unholiest Alliance? It's season 17, episode 8. And it looks like they they released it in 2016. The question goes on to say it is incredibly like Sister Kathy's story. And they're wondering if it's loosely based on Sister Kathy and if the script writers turned up anything during their... The quick answer is yes, it is loosely based on Sister Kathy's story. And no, there was no research done because we all recognized the resemblance to sister Kathy's story when we saw that SVU episode. So everybody watched it the next week because we knew it was in two parts, but everything in that story was readily available either in newspaper articles or the keepers had not come out yet. So they didn't take it from the keepers, but everything was already available and they wrote the story based on that. So they did not do separate research. Script writers do not typically do that for something that's two one-hour episodes. They did not consult with us. They took everything from newspaper articles that were already existing. And they did a good job of the guy that they had play Maskell. He was a ringer for that man. He looked just like him. The story was a little bit different, but it resembled it enough for us to know that they had copied it. Proctor Kathy's murder. Good. The next question is from Natalie Bud Size Whiskey. I'm sure I butchered that last name, so I send my apologies out to Natalie. But her question is Does Sharon May have a history of ethics issues? And what is her record? And where is she now? Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Shane, that we're going to be yeah. having a converse- conversation with someone who knows her? 
Definitely. A few weeks ago, we got into contact with a another podcaster who covered a case that Sharon May worked on. And at the time when this podcaster was working that case in the episodes in the series, of course, she had no idea about the keepers and all of that until the keepers went out. So we have been in contact with this person. And we do plan on interviewing her for this series, and hopefully we'll learn more about the history of ethic problems that Sharon May has had. I have no idea where she is now. Is that, Jane, well, do you have any idea? A number of us have tried to locate her, and her office does not appear to be open anymore in Baltimore. Her phone number is disconnected. and. We really don't know. I heard that she was ill. I heard that she left the country. I don't know where she is. I do think that most people would be very interested in what she has to say since the series came out. And going back to the comment about the ethics issues, the person, the prosecutor that we're going to have an interview with that knew Sharon, there apparently was a matter of a thank you letter that Sharon personally wrote to someone who testified in a court case where the person's testimony helped the defendant get off. And Sharon is thanking them for their role in helping the defendant be acquitted, which is very atypical and not very kosher for an attorney to write a thank you letter to somebody who helped somebody get off. So we'll hear more about that in the future when we can get together with this other attorney. I am still trying to reach her. I have talked to her cousin, who actually was a Keogh student, and apparently Sharon doesn't really want to talk to anybody publicly, and I don't know where she's living right now. If anybody knows, see if she'll talk to Gemma and Shane. Yeah, we would love to have her on. That's for sure. We have lots of questions. All right. So the next question is from Amy Robinson. Uh, Amy's question is, did Sister Kathy's order ever wear a blue habit? In the episode about Billy, it says there was a blue nun's habit in the attic. No, they did not wear blue. Oops. Go ahead. I was just going to add that they also added on that since Billy was Kathy's neighbor and possibly was part of the murder and in her apartment, they were wondering if the blue habit was random or if he took it from her apartment. Okay, as far as we know, first of all, the school sisters of Notre Dame ND did not wear blue. Their habits were black and white, and the nuns changed from the long habit with the full headpiece to shorter habits with a modified headpiece, and those were still black and white. Now, I have a feeling nun's habit that was found in the Schmidt's attic was probably from a costume store because we know that Dilly and Skippy got dressed up as a nun and a priest on Halloween and went parading down Pratt Street in Baltimore someplace. So, no, it would not have come from her apartment because, to my knowledge, her habit did not come with her when she moved into that apartment. She was wearing street clothes 
to school and many people, including the students at Western High School, did not even know that she was a nun. So I think that was something that Billy bought himself and the sisters at Keogh did not wear blue. I took care of that question. Of course, if anyone else has questions that they would like us to discuss or go more into, definitely contact us them on one of the Facebook groups. Was there anything else you wanted to add, Gemma? No, but we I do have all of your questions marked from the Keepers page, everybody. So we're going to work through those. If we can do three, four, or five after each episode, that will be our goal. And if it gets too overwhelming, maybe we'll just do Q&As for a half hour one night. I don't know, Shane. We'll have to talk about that. But I think after... This evening, listening to Cindy, everybody has a lot to process. Definitely. And if you think that you do have information about this case, we do want you to contact the detectives involved with Sister Kathy's murder. Yeah. So I think that that we're all set, Gemma. I think so. All right. Thank you, Shane. It was fun being your co-host. I'm looking forward to it.